Hello and welcome back to the latest Think Business podcast powered by Bank of Ireland. Renowned Irish IP and data lawyer Gene Kelly, partner with Brown Jacobson, talks about why data regulation matters to SMEs and multinationals and why six years later GDPR is still only finding its feet in the Irish business world. Gene, you're very welcome. Uh, myself and Gene go back many years to sitting on the judging panel at Startup Weekends in a lovely, lovely time uh, before Tech Rex and all that kind of stuff happened. And um, you're very welcome, Gene. Um, now, Gene, you're, you're, you're probably best summed up uh, through your time as maybe a technology lawyer, but you're also co-founder of Brown Jacobson uh a law firm that has recently established in Dublin and you, you work with so many big tech companies and uh, and all that. And I suppose really uh, what I often think about when I think about technology law in, in in this day and age, unless you're hiding under a rock, you wouldn't not be aware of big fines being hit on, on certain big companies um, sure. by, by regulators in Europe. And I suppose what I often try to filter this down is that I often say to people, some people say to me like, oh, um, you used to do technology, you're right about technology. And I say to people, no, every company today is a technology company because if you're handling data, you are no different from a, a Meta or a Google or, or an Apple. You are handling data. And, and therefore, there are certain things you need to crystallise in your mind, whether you're selling brown paper envelopes in, in, in Kenmare or you're, you're doing a, um, you know, an e-commerce business or something. The fact of the matter is you're taking this information. You need to know where your data is sitting, but also you're, you're liable if anything happens to that data as well, if you're hacked, for example. Uh, so tell, tell us about from the point of view, if we're to filter down, never mind the metas or the Googles of this world, because they're, 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 they're giant organisations. Um, but if you're talking about, say, a 30-person 30, 30 business in Dublin or Cork or a 100-person manufacturing firm in Mullingar, are at the end of the day data is now what your business runs on but you have responsibilities i love that you mentioned mullingar because that's my hometown is I it? that was delivered <laughs> that was not um, deliberate <laughs> there you go well hey um, mullingar is gdpr compliance they're very compliant people <laughs> so I have, I have to leave it and practice law elsewhere and <laughs> um, so yeah i mean that's i think that's very well framed and very well put um I suppose the um, the origin of data protection law, um, a lot of its roots are in German law. And I'm not going to butcher the German language, but there is a German law concept of informational self-determination, mm-hmm. that the information about you as a person, like whether you're married or whether you're single or where you live or who you work for, what you buy, that all of these things that surround you as an individual are things about which you have rights. Now, they're not unlimited rights. You don't have a right to kind of control what other people's opinion is of you mm. or to rewrite things about yourself, but that your reputation, if you like, and what is contained about you on other people's systems, and, and for very obvious historical reasons, the um, journal is sensitive to what can go wrong when that goes into the wrong hands. Mm. That that informational self-determination is a very core part of German law. It has been exported into European law and adopted with gusto, I have to say. It has now become culturally accepted broadly across Europe, whether you're a civil law or common law country, most famously through GDPR. So that's the way I like to frame it, is if you look at it from the individual point of view, though I always act for corporates, I very rarely act for individuals because I work in a corporate law firm. Mm. If you think of it that way, it helps you frame it a bit better because the individual's who are dealing with your company, whether they are suppliers or whether they are employees, and a lot of these issues are employee issues, have those rights. And you have, as an organisation, 
corollary obligations around that. Now, some of them are very simple obligations, like you have an Article 30 obligation under the GDPR that you have to have systems in place to record what it is you do to data. So that if a regulator came knocking, they could say, okay, you have 500 employees or 30 in the manufacturing company in Mullingar. Show me how you uh, ensure that you don't keep that information for too long. Show me who has access to it. Mm. And, and those are quite simple things. I mean, there are third-party platforms that sell you beautiful products around this that are fantastic and all the bells and whistles. But you can do it on Word and Excel as well. Mm. So that's a very long-winded way answer, but I suppose it is, is it a way of saying that you've got, in the same way as you have um, obligations around um, environmental impacts of your business and planning, law um, considerations around your business, you have obligations which are very serious in relation to personal data. Now, I would say there is a fundamental difference, a qualitative difference between what we call the VLOPs now, this expression has come into all of our language in the area, the very large online platforms mm. um, such as Meta and Twitter and um, LinkedIn, even all of those. There is a fundamental difference between those companies whose business the engine underlying those businesses, of course, data, and a company that is, say, manufacturing and has very little personal data other than that of its employees and key mm. suppliers. And um, so, but but the law is the same. The cop, the obligations to comply are the same. Um, and if you are in a medium size or small business and you take shortcuts, you may be as likely to get a fine as the bigger companies are. It won't be as big. It's a turnover-based fine. Yeah. Um, there isn't as much public interest in your fine if you're a medium-sized company because manufacturing is not as sexy for the want of a better word um, as some of the other areas it's not as newsworthy hmm. but there are fines and um and i suppose the fine the purpose of the fine is twofold one it helps it's dissuasive it's supposed to be effective and dissuasive because some people will do the right thing because they have a corporate governance culture and they are risk averse. Mm. Um, so the bigger companies that are used to having a compliance spend view this as just another compliance spend and they get on with it mm. in the same way as they deal with anti-bribery or anything else. Mm. The, the companies who invest in compliance in this, they frankly want to see that if they've spent on this area and they've put people into this area, these are permanent employees, a lot of them who look after these areas, they want to see that they are not at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis their competitors who didn't bother. So fines really do have that effect. And we saw a little bit of that thinking in kind of lockdown, I think, really, if if you kept within your 2K and other people didn't, we saw lots of public coverage about this in the UK. Hey, if I didn't have a good time and I didn't go to parties, I will really resent the people, especially if they were in government, who went to parties. And yeah. um, there's a little bit of that thinking, if you like, in GDPR, which is that if I spend on this, I want to see that I have a financial advantage and a market advantage to the fact that I took it seriously. Mm. Because otherwise you might feel, what was I doing spending on all of this? So uh, that's just a very natural kind of human response to law. Um, and that's a very whistle-stop tour of kind of why it matters. But uh, it, I do always bring it back to the core. It is back to... 1930s Germany, which had near flawless records about what ethnicity people had, what religion they had, what was their sexuality, so that when the Nazi regime took hold, um, they could target target people very sadly, very, very effectively, and um, because they knew who they were and they knew where they were. And that 
that that core underpins all of data privacy law. It's fascinating, actually, when you think about it, and, and obviously very poignant, a very poignant point you make. Mm. But, but on a basic level, say, if I'm a managing director of a company and I um, <clears throat> you know, may have a small amount of employees, but I have customer data, and mm. I joined the general pell-mell dash to the cloud because... You know, it's a it's a force multiplier. It makes me better as a business. It's affordable. I don't have to have servers in my building anymore. But someone else is hosting my data, and I don't necessarily know what they're doing with that data. I don't know if they're transferring that data around the world or whatever. Uh, how do I, as a business, reasonably protect myself um, and my customers? And obviously, any potential fallout by simply saying I don't know where the data is stored on these servers. I don't think that's a good enough answer. If if um, if something yeah, happens, I think the regulator would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, what do you advise if, if, let's say, I'm a manufacturer of car parts in Mullingar who happens to basically have, you know, um, lots of customer data and it's customers from around the world as well as Ireland, and you know, I'm, I'm shipping stuff around the world. They're buying stuff online, uh, but I don't know where. My say my for argument's sake, my Salesforce CRM database is stored, or you know, or something else. I'm using yeah. an accountancy platform for our argument's sake. What would be your general advice to prepare for that uh, situation? Yeah, I think there's two things. And the first is to remember that keeping all of your information on site in the way that we all used to, and um, is not. Now, I'm not a data security expert. Mm. I do the legal side of it, so I'm not an engineer, yeah. and I like to, I like to be clear that I know what I don't know. And <laughs> But the, from an engineering point of view and from a data security point of view, keeping it all on site is no longer safe. And mm. uh, I would know business in the past, for example, if I had fires, so very low tech issues, if you like, such as a fire and um, mm. where they ended up having to reconstruct records because they didn't use any cloud providers. Now it is regarded as safer to have an element of your data in the cloud. And the good news is that the very big providers are aware that their customers have this issue. So a lot of them have quite developed FAQs on their site um, and they'll have their own in-house teams that can kind of explain to a fairly decent level where the information is, the kind of times around the globe that different um, sites kick in, what their service providers are. So the likes of Salesforce, for example, or Microsoft for any of these companies, um, they have the resources and they have crucially the in-house personnel, um, which can be scores and scores and scores of people who can who can provide a customer with that information that they need in order to satisfy a regulator. Mm. Uh, the tricky bit is if you're using um, a more not as well-established provider um, who, can't near, who can't as readily put their hand to who are the different network, a spider, if you like, a network of yeah. um, different providers that provide to them. So the, the biggest operators, and then competition law looks at this too, the biggest operators have that inbuilt advantage because they know about this they prepared for GDPR for two or three years before it became alive and they have FAQs and they have information centers and they have in-house lawyers. Now, the truth of it is if you're a small provider, the manufacturer of car parts, for example, down in Mullingar and you're dealing with Salesforce, they're not really going to negotiate their contract with you. It's going to be, this is what we do. Mm. Um, but you still have to do diligence on them. You still have to um, create a record of where why you thought they were okay. And that can be quite a low-tech document in a lot of ways. You can say, I looked at Salesforce, look at these providers. I took comfort from the fact that they were owned by X. I looked at their website and this. Oh, yeah, reputable. Um, the nature um, of our data is this. But it is that, what the primary school teachers used to call smocked, the control. It's that record-keeping of 
And it's not box ticking. There's much more than that because a regulator can ask you and can test you on what you what you did around that. What a lot of companies struggle with is that part is they I just used them. Uh, you know, I had used them in my old company, so I used them in my new company. I don't have a piece of paper. We never carried out that assessment. And again, it goes as well to the nature of the data. So if you were like a medical information company, mm. for example, and you were doing clinical research, there's a higher standard that you have to apply. And, and, and you probably would have someone in-house whose role it was. You mightn't have a DPO as such, but you might have someone, sometimes a committee, whose role it was to examine things like that. And I think what has happened post-GDPR, which coincidentally it's five-year birthday was the other day. God, really? These people are more people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. So GDPR is getting ready to start big school in September. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a maturity has come into the market now. People mm. are generally aware of that and it's become easier. But that was not easy five or six years ago. And advising people who... We're frankly saying to you, this is the best provider. It's the most secure provider. Their systems are the best. But I don't have a huge pile of paperwork that that kind of guarantees those rights to the data subject. Mm. That, in my view, is still better to use, it. you know, the lesser of two evils. It is better to use a more secure provider and to try and, you know, create some documents that reflect that position than it is to have beautiful documents with a provider that isn't secure. So the lawyer always wants the beautiful documents, but the pragmatist in me says um, it's the security of the data is what the law is about. It's the loss mm. of the data and damage to the data causes you risk and loss. And that's why when I was joining Brian Jacobson, I was really keen to join a practice that had what myself and my co-founder, Kieran Markey, call an end-to-end -end service where you're looking at the documents, but you're also looking at what happens if this goes wrong? Mm. Who's liable? Which courts are going to have jurisdiction over the losses that may be calculated in this and um, are there third parties who can contribute towards a loss yeah. um, are there third parties who can help me if I have to go to the regulation and say oops you've had a data breach so I was very keen to have an, this end-to-end -end integrated contentious and non-contentious blended together team I'd seen it before in the past I'd worked on a team like that in the past um, and I was eager to get back to it. The American clients, and I, I have a lot of American clients, they work that way. They look mm. at the issue and they say, have we a litigator on the call? They expect to have a litigator on the call. Whereas in Ireland, traditionally in the biggest law firms, we divided ourselves along these lines that clients don't care about, but lawyers care about saying I'm non-contentious or I'm contentious, you know. Wow. Clients don't care about that. They want the issue dealt with oh, in the yeah. round. They, so, they, 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 was, they, they don't want to be hauled to court or they don't want to be paying big fines. And that's simply as that. They don't. Yeah, and they, and, they don't, and they don't want a separate call with litigators a lot of the no. time. They kind of say, okay, so where's your risk guy or, or lady? It's not a sexist <laughs> thing. Um, and they expect them to be on the call. So that that became just something that was a recurring theme. And I'd know, I'd know Kieran in the past. I knew he was really whip smart and clever. Mm. And um, I thought this this combination works. There's something about um, that approach of a blended service that it's client-led. So it was that we were definitely looking at what clients were looking for as opposed to what we would want to deliver. Um, in any service business, that's probably key, but it's not that obvious. Yeah. Um, uh, that that was very important to me and and to Kieran too and uh, and and it's working. That's it, it's question, working for us building a practice. A question running through my mind there is that it, a question for our age and it, I I I 
don't know if this is a naive question or it's a good question or not, but the thing is, right, so let's just say I have a load of customer data and I have it sitting on my systems, either in my premises or in a hybrid situation or, or off, off-site. And I, one of my employees falls for a spit uh, you know a phishing scam clicks on a link and suddenly um i'm i'm a victim of um a harn you know a you know an attack where i have to pay a ransom or a ransomware attack sorry and suddenly i don't even know if my data is suddenly then on the in the dark web i don't know how many you know what's happened to it um Am I liable as a business then for that failing? Because maybe I didn't train my staff to be more careful about phishing emails or maybe my systems should have been better locked up or backed up. And um, now, you know, my, my information or my client information is flying around the dark web. And not only that, I have to pay a ransomware fine to whoever these guys, maybe or maybe or not, uh, recommendation is not. Um, but the, the situation is, am I liable in that situation? It's a famous lawyer's answer always, which it depends. Um, <laughs> but yes, in principle, you can be liable and you can yeah. be liable even if you provide training um, and, you know, home or nods training. Um, you know, sometimes people don't do the relevant training or they, mm. they forget it or whatever. Um, yes, yes, you can be liable. There's a line of European court decisions recently, um, which we were all very closely following in relation to do you have to show loss? What level of loss do you have to show? Um, people carry insurance for some of these things as well, which 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 always helps. But mm. of course, the crucial thing with insurance is they may be predicated on you taking certain steps and those steps may not have been taken. So mm. your insurance might say, everyone has to have XYZ training. If you don't provide the training, then we're not providing the cover. So mm. um, some, you know, cyber risk insurance has become quite common. Um, so sometimes you get into a debate. If it's a large amount of money, you might get into a debate as to whether the cover is available or not. Yeah. But the obligation isn't to keep information fireproof. So, um, you know, it's not a kind of a strict liability test at law. So just the, the fact that some information becomes at risk doesn't necessarily mean that you have breached GDPR. You can follow every system in the world and have every training in the world and someone can still get in. So and it is a risk based law. Um, but the con- but the regulator, particularly the Irish regulator in recent years, as she's had more resources and much more visible, I think, than, than any other regulator in Europe. Um, the, the key thing is the notification obligation, and you have to notify the regulator of any breach. And then there's a two-step test as to whether you tell the data subjects or not, because that's the big debate. Um, in some US states, they brought in a law that you had to be told about every data breach. It became white noise very quickly, and within a couple of days of that law coming in, people set up rules on their email that all of these California data, you know, breach notifications would go to your deleted items because you might get 20 in a day from different providers. We took a different approach in the European Union. It's much more of an analysis about the the harm that could occur. So it does um, require a bit of, you know, thought at that stage. The timeframes are very tight and you have to notify very quickly. And so sometimes the thought is going on in parallel with the notification. That's something that companies quite legitimately find difficult because you have to put up the flag and and notify very quickly. And you have to notify the regulator what, what you think has happened. A lot of the time that's not clear at the time you're making the notification. So you have to put your best foot forward and say, um, the information that's available to you, that changes during the course of an investigation a lot of the time. 
need to go back to the regulation and say, we thought it was X. For example, we had one many years ago where we thought it was an external hack in a company and a notification was made on that basis. That was our mm. best belief, best information at the time. And it turned out that it was an inside job. And once it became known that actually it wasn't external, it was um, a crime of passion, actually, believe it or not, a relationship that had gone wrong. So the human factor is always there in data protection. We then had to go back into the regulator and say, actually, we're wrong. It is uh, partly internal, and this is why. So that can be a difficult process, especially in the big companies, because to make any notification to a regulator is a very serious thing and they always want to be accurate but being accurate and, and fast is very difficult mm. and i suppose the other thing then that's going through my mind as well is the the work of corporate law and tech law in ireland uh you know in ireland the recent thing has been startups and lots of young companies want to be the next big thing and you know mm. the big issue of the day is obviously funding uh but the other thing I'm kind of noticing as well is a lot of Irish indigenous tech companies are quite acquisitive at the moment. And yes. They're, they're brilliantly acquisitive and, and it's great to see. Mm. It, I, lo- I love seeing companies scale up. And <clears throat> But the other thing as well is a lot of people don't talk about is things like due diligence and, you know, uh, the things that will trip you up. And I heard someone at an event I was at the other day talk to me about... Um, I think in the case of uh, Mark Little's Storyful being bought by News Corp, that, that due diligence process took nearly nine months. And... That's a lot of a lot of time for a company to be waiting and hanging around, and you know, you've got bills to pay, and and also so many things will trip you up. Questions aren't answered correctly, and the due diligence process will just shave off the value of what you thought you might get for your company as well. Lots of other things, copyright, uh, intellectual property, and a little known area called trade secrets is something that yes. most people don't talk about. And it's again the, the lengths you go to to protect your 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 your, your uh, secret sauce, I suppose. Uh, tell, tell us a bit about the kind of work you do in that area, and and, and how important it is for companies who, you know, on one hand, I I've, I imagine it's incredibly distracting trying to be the next big thing in whatever you're trying to do, like it's a new piece of software or a technology or hardware of some kind. But then you've got all the things going on. You've got people maybe asking to buy your company. Then people maybe to look, have to say, oh, can I take a closer look at your IP? You don't know if they're going to steal your IP. All of these things. Uh, it's commonplace in Silicon Valley, but I think we've a little bit of grown up to do in this side of the world. What do you think of all that? <laughs> I think it's really, it's really interesting. And um, I'm smiling as you're saying it because I'm bringing back memories of, um, you know, but 20 years ago when I started my career, I was, um, we were in a, what I would call a commercial department, though it wasn't called that. Um, in one of one of the biggest law firms in the country. But our team did more, what I would say, commercial work really late, relates to that type of trade trading work, if you like. So the big contracts that your customers have um, and corporate, when we talk about corporate law, it generally relates to who owns the company and who are the shares held by, whether that's privately held or um, on a market after an IPO. Um, and I kind of leaned to the commercial side. Now, that was because that was the team I worked in the guy we worked, that we reported into, I suppose, really, that was his leaning. And that's where I spent six or seven years. So you look around and after six or seven years, you were a commercial lawyer. But we were in a corporate department and we did a lot of transactional work. And we did a lot of back then flotations work and, um, you know, really, really long hours, very, very demanding work. But it was a great discipline because you learned a lot because of the mistakes that companies that you were floating had made in the past. Mm. So it's always very easy to say to a company, oh, well, five years ago, you should have done X. You should have protected your trade secrets of this. You should have done this to your data. You should have, should have, should have, should have. Very easy for a lawyer to do that. And as you get, 
and when I was younger, I suppose we would have been nervous when you'd spot an issue like that because the client, um, if you were acting on the sales side, um, would have been very sensitive to mistakes that they might have made or shortcuts. And it, it's never easy to say to people, actually, the value may be affected by this. The truth, I think, really, when you get a bit older, you realise is that actually if the product is fantastic, you can get by a lot of these issues. The ownership issue is the one that's core. So if there's any shadow over the ownership of an asset, that's hard to fix because the other person who has a claim, a bit like land, you know, you're going to have to cross their palm with silver to clean up that issue. Uh, so that has a cost and a value implication. So ownership is very, I wouldn't say it's hard to fix. Legally, it's quite easy to fix, but commercially, it costs money to fix. Um, I think the great thing about what has happened the tech market in Ireland in recent years, you have so many, and like Mark Little is a fantastic example, I smiled when you mentioned him, he's just a fantastic advocate for the sector. You have a lot of people in, in young companies in Ireland where they have grown up in very large organisations and they have worked in the metas and the TikToks and Twitters of this world. Um, and and you have a lot of people who are very knitted into the VC community. So mm. there is a sophistication, I think, in recent years around these issues. And a lot of clients will come to you if you're investing in a company or they're buying a company and they'll say to you, I know it's not perfect for this stuff, but the product is good. And actually what they want in diligence is they want you to price the remediation. So I think there's a I think that that is positive um, because it certainly helps companies, as we say, kind of bring out your dad and come to the table with total clarity about we have done X, we've done our best to be compliant with laws, but we didn't spend a huge amount of money. And this is what we did. A lot of the time, they're 80 percent of the way there to a strong degree of compliance. And they use the investment money or the acquisition money to notch it up a bit. And um, so the personalization of it, I think, has, has really disappeared. There's you're less likely to sit in front of a founder who's either embarrassed or angry about shortcuts they've taken. They're normally a bit more direct now and they know that they have taken the shortcuts they've taken. But as I said, the key one um, data issues, um, it's hard to retrofit compliance onto them. Mm. And the data set is the data set. Um, but the ownership of IP issue, I think that's absolutely core. And I've dealt with companies where an acquisition would have failed over the years because the core product was owned in part by, for example, a university or by a business partner in a JV. Um, and it wasn't theirs to sell. Um, so that that happens, but it's rare. I would say it's rare. Very good. Well, with that, Jean Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Great. I'd say a roller coaster journey through the, the world of data and technology law today. And I definitely would love to talk to you again about more issues, maybe in more granular form at some point as well. So t- thank, you. T- thank you so much for your time. And thank you for asking me and Brian Jacobson to be part of this. We're very, we're very pleased to be.